0: In this final Reset the podcast of this year, I am so delighted to bring you again one of my most loved and listened to conversations. A time that I spent with Rose McGowan, the entrepreneur, American actress, activist, author, and musician. In 2017, Rose reset Hollywood in its entirety through speaking out about sexual assault and harassment. In our conversation, she talks to me about the, that moment and everything that has followed since. I explore also a side to Rose that few people hear about Rose McGowan, the businesswoman, the entrepreneur, and the investor. She describes what Hollywood taught her not to do in business terms and how she judges what business investments she makes. Not unsurprisingly, the words brave, fair, and well-being are never far from her mind when making these decisions i love this fascinating insight into the other side of one of the world's most famous activists and now a lovely friend to me thank you all for listening to reset the podcast this year thanks for your comments your thoughts your suggestions your ideas and how you've been looking after your own well-being and performance this year We have so much more to look forward to in 2022. I'll see you again in January. But until then, have a good break, take time to relax and reset. Reset, the podcast, is brought to you in association with Liars, the non-alcoholic spirits brand. Whether it's low alcohol or no alcohol, Liars helps you enjoy your classic favourite cocktails. Hello everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast. A place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energised starts here. Take a moment now with me to Reset. This is Mental Health Awareness Week. If ever there was a woman to whom I should be talking about mental health, wellbeing and resetting in my Reset podcast series, Rose McGowan is that woman. In 2017, she reset Hollywood in its entirety through speaking out about sexual assault and harassment. In my podcast, we talk about that moment and everything that has followed since. During our chat, I was also delighted to be able to explore a sight arose that few people hear about. Rose McGowan, the businesswoman, the entrepreneur and the investor. She describes what Hollywood taught her not to do in business terms and how she judges what business investments she makes. Not unsurprisingly, the words brave, fair and well-being are never far from her mind when making these decisions. This Reset podcast is a fascinating insight into the other side of one of the world's most famous activists.
1: Hey, Rose, how are you? Hello, Suki Thompson. I'm great. How are you? Well, it's lovely to see you again.
0: It's been, um, you know, we were at the Power Up Festival in January. And now, well, when this comes out, it's going to be in May at the mini Power Up Festival that we're doing. So, what's been happening to you since then?
1: Well, what's been happening to me since the Power Up Festival is um, as an activist, I continue to fight the power. As a businesswoman, I'm developing many things. I bought land where I live, and I am actively uh, with a, an architect working on designing what's well, essentially a wellness center for the mind. It's not going to be like a spa treatment kind of thing. It's based on sound healing uh, with my album, Planet Nine, um, that I mixed on special frequencies to do sound healing and also to a study of my book, Brave. There's a course outline that goes with it to teach people how to be brave. I'm also working on, I'm launching a perfume that I cannot name, yeah. And uh, I can't name it because that's part of launching it, which is people have to guess the name, which I don't think they'll ever be able to. <laughs> and, and just, you know, I have other um, before 2017 and, and the big reckoning in media and the me too stuff and all of that. I, I got a lot of projects ready because I knew I'd be dead in the water in Hollywood and, not that I wanted to work there anymore, that I needed a big outside business life as well. And I've, you know, I've made some fairly savvy investments and I am somebody who finds that world in the business world fascinating, but it's also interesting just that it's such a language that I'm still learning.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, that's so much. Well, we can, we can come on and talk a lot about that, but let's, let's come back to when you were your early life because, you know, you were, you were born in Italy in Florence and you know we've talked a lot before but um, Daniel and Terry your mum and dad um, you were in a commune the children of God and I'm fascinated to think how did the commune work from a financial point of view how did you see your dad did you see him actively working earning money how did that work
1: well, I didn't see them actively earning money. The way most of the people in the sect earned money was by, and this is ironic since they had to kind of denounce and renounce their families that they had come from, their born families, uh, but they would still ask them for money. And then I performed on the streets as a child and the other children would too for money. Uh, singing Jesus songs, whatnot. But my father was also an incredible fine artist. And at the same time, he was running the Children of God Italian chapter. (laughs) (laughs) He (laughs) he was doing artwork for late... Like Bocci, Baci, B A C I, the famous Italian chocolate company, or he designed their label, and or he would do illustrations for Vogue Italia, or you know, just a number of things like freelance things. But I think their primary source of income was proselytizing on on the streets and and asking their parents or their family for money. From what I could see, yes. Gosh. But so it they did, didn't really set me up with a good business structure.
0: <laughs> no, it didn't set you up for a bit, good business structure, but it did get you to earn money when you were very young and learn about work when you were very young.
1: Oh, extremely uh, so. I resented people taking my money also from a very young age that didn't earn it, that That was something that stayed with me all through Hollywood when agents, managers, lawyers take a huge percentage for stuff they're not really doing, especially the agents and managers, uh, the work they're not doing, but they take a big percentage. I resented that from an early age and I and I still do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't blame you about that, but but that's really interesting. So, you know, you, you then did go over to Hollywood and. Um, you emancipated yourself from your parents at 15. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing to do, particularly from a financial point of view, isn't it? Because that then does mean you are completely on your own and you had to go out into the
1: world, I guess, and earn money for yourself and, and work for yourself. Completely. When I emancipated myself, um, I represented myself in court, and I remember wearing, I, do you call them nylons or pantyhose uh, in the UK? I'm not sure, but I wore those because I thought that's what adult women wore. So I wanted to look you know, very serious. And I quickly got a job after becoming emancipated at a public relations firm for medical companies like Bristol Myers Squibb. And there was a big breast implant scandal going on at the time And I got a job as a just turned 15-year-old. I lied and told this PR company, pre-Google, that I was a graduate of the USC Corporate School (gasps) of Communications, which does not exist um, at all. And also, I looked like a child. I had to take the bus. So I had to, cause I wasn't old enough to drive. So I had to be dropped off far away. So no one would see me, you know, not driving there like an adult. And they were always talking to me about my clothing choices, which is funny because I would put on some mishmash of what I thought adult ladies in offices would wear. And I'm pretty sure I missed the mark most of the time and judging from how often they talked to me about my strange outfits, but they were, it was the strange weird office world that I had never before or since been a part of wow. and office politics and strange rules. And then, um, I spoke, I did like surveys. I was responsible for serving all these doctors across the U S yeah. and I really was shocked at how stupid a lot of them were. That <laughs> I, that was my takeaway from that. Oh and my gosh. how, how and and then I realized how much of what we read in the news about health, about anything really is put in by PR companies. And I didn't last there all that long because I just don't think I have a great, what I, it was just a bizarre world, first of all, but it was, it was the characters in there. Like there was an office manager, her name was Kiki her last name was even weirder, but I can't say it. And she had long nails that were so long they curled, like, re- like, like <laughs> really long, like yeah. half a meter, like Guinness Book of World Records going for that kind of thing. And she would, she had a wart on the end of her tongue, and she would always like, <laughs> like, flip oh the wart back and forth while she clack clack clacked on her typing thing. And I just thought, this is not my world, no.
0: Well I'm not sure that's many people's world but but how fascinating <laughs> I, never, I never knew that that's what you did but great observation and my
1: my only other job besides that was when I was 14 uh, my only other job besides Hollywood was when I was 14 and worked at a funeral home oh, which right. I loved Wow did you did you why did you like working at a funeral home? I found the dead people a lot safer than the living well yeah
0: well there's a, there's a little bit of a yeah i can see i can understand that and and maybe um you know maybe that's given you a bit of uh insight into the rest of your life as well because i mean you know we've we have talked before what you did then in hollywood was extraordinary um but from a from a business point of view you know we we always kind of leap now to um very much the end of your hollywood time and um mm-hmm. you know some of the challenges that you've had but actually when you were in there um doing the kind of films that you were involved in. So you, you had agents, did you did you see the money? Did you look after the money? How did you kind of control that whole business aspect of of what you were doing while you were in Hollywood? <laughs>
1: Well, the thing with being an actor and actress is that it's very out of control and very much out of your own control. I've been lucky. I've had a good business manager, accountant since I was 19. I've had my own company since then, uh, my own corporation. My company that I named is Damage Incorporated, Damage Inc. That is mm-hmm. my corporation name. <laughs> and it, it um, you know, I learned what not to do by watching and learning from these business people's mistakes. And I I noticed in Hollywood, they would just make these really stupid decisions and leave so much money on the table. I couldn't understand why these people could call themselves business people and leave so much money on the table through their uh, either willful ignorance or fear of, of making moves, you know, and a lot of times they kill, you know, when somebody wanted to do a deal with you, they would just drag their feet so much that uh, the heat, and the, on the project would just disappear and nobody was interested anymore in the legal wranglings. And that was something that happened over and over. And I just thought there just got to be a better way to do this. I really resented having to have representation, um, in that capacity because they they spoke for me. They, they, you were not allowed to speak to the business people. You were only allowed to do what they told you to do when it came to marketing. And, and then I just, like I said, I think Hollywood leaves huge amounts of money on the table and I, I just saw bad business practices. But, you know, it's like when I directed my movie, Dawn, and that was, you know, later in my career, mm-hmm. I, I got asked a lot. What did you learn from the men you worked with? That was like the number one question I got. And I said, uh, you know, what not to do? <laughs> I learned what not to do. And I learned on their dime. And I became a very uh, efficient and motivated director, not just to cut costs, but to put everything I had on the screen or in people's pockets instead of just frittering away into air. And I also, you know, from an early age, I started investing in things because I knew that would be, and I had a financial advisor, but I didn't really, I didn't really go to them that much. I invested not a big amount, but in a company called dry Bar, which um, until COVID was very huge all over the United States, I started with one and now it's a blow dry only kind of thing. And what I look for yeah. as an investor is holes in the market. I look for things yeah. that are egalitarian, fair and need to be there. Uh, blow dries aren't, you know, my aesthetic, but I realized that it was only women that could afford a lot of money to get their hair done that would get these. And it was kind of like having a blow dry for a lot of women. I noticed was um, kind of like them wearing their men's power suit. Yes. And, yes. And, and I really noticed how they felt. And I thought it was unfair that it was $80 USD um, to just to get one. And so these dry bar made it. So it was $40, but they also... I looked at who's behind, I looked at who's involved with this company, I look at someone that understands this business from boots on the ground, but also that there's uh, a major, but that it's not just them understanding and dealing with the finances or the visuals.
0: Mm. And, and did you get to know the people that were running the business? Was is, you know Have your investments been with people who you've, you've had as friends, or are they a, simply a business transaction, or do you want to get involved in the companies as well?
1: These were business transactions, and but I did learn from them. I did learn quite a bit about launching a business. And I learned, you know, the the, the guy involved in Drybar that was the finance, the CFO, he um, he was at, at Yahoo, like a big wig at Yahoo before he went there. So I learned quite a bit from him. And then another one that I've invested in right now that I'm doing very well in is something called Green Thumb Industries. And it's the largest cannabis stock that's publicly traded uh, in the Canadian Stock Exchange. And like I said, I looked for holes in the market. There was this vape that was very pretty and they had these pastilles and and it was kind of, um, and they were gentle, the amount, the dosage in it. And it was more for kind of people that would shop at, I don't know, maybe a Harrods or Selfridges in the designer department, Mm -hmm. you know, who would be a little bit scared of cannabis. So this was kind of an elegant way in. And I realized that was a hole in the market because almost all of the things that are geared towards people that smoke and use cannabis were kind of look kind of like things for frat guys and bros, you know, and Mm -hmm. And so again, and so then this comp- GTI Green Thumb Industries bought this company, the vape company, and I've done quite well with that as, as well. But I did I did lose on Krispy Kreme, and I learned that that's because they expanded too quickly. So okay. you know, you learn from your mistakes yeah. too. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think I think you do, and and um, you know, I think it's it's. We all learn, don't we, from the people we invest in, the companies that we support. But I, but I also see from you, and I'm not surprised that you think very carefully about um, the, you know, the kind of ethos of the company. And albeit, you know, you might well cannabis. Perhaps that's not something that we automatically associate with. All that <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're actually looking at it from from a slightly different perspective.
1: I am because I'm not looking at it through just numbers and returns. I'm looking for it again, like what do I wish was out there? And if I'm wishing it was out there, then there must be many other people. The metric in Hollywood before uh, the Internet came along for being able to tell how many fans you had or what a base of fans any particular star had was if you got one piece of fan mail, the studio had... um, studio system figured out that that was worth 5,000 fans and that you had 5,000 fans per one piece of fan mail. So I've realized that if I have a thought, it can't be that unique. So that means 5,000 other people are having that thought and that 5,000 of those 5,000 have 5,000 and on and on. So that's kind of how I do my own metrics.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I can get that. I can get that. When you took on Harvey Weinstein um, and that massive corporation and everything that went with him, do you think that by not having been in a business, you know, for very long, but you'd absolutely been in Hollywood, it made you braver to be able to stand up to somebody who was one well, himself powerful, but just everything that went with that power and that kind of massive organization. Um, or, or was were you just so driven by um, wanting to write something you felt that was wrong? You didn't think about the, the kind of business perspective or the fact that it was such a um, something beyond just the man.
1: Oh, I very much knew it was something beyond the man. Very much so. For years, I knew I would be. You know, when it came time to strike that it would be at an entire system, at an entire structure of a, a business model, if you will, you know, one that features human trafficking at its core. And that was something I wanted to strike against and also show people that you can take down power, even those who seem impenetrable like their fortress is impenetrable and he had so much protection and and so much money and so many um people helping across all you know both in the media both in hollywood both in washington dc you know he had help from all these different uh corners and and to take them all on it wasn't just taking this individual on; it was it was the machine and what i learned from that was that you know i've been shadow banned um the tech bros really suppress me. And it makes me sickened. I'm like, there's so many bad people out there. I'm not one of them. I know this for a fact. And yet they suppress me, you know, on a million followers, they on Twitter, I'll post something and it gets 200 and something likes. That's statistically impossible. Why do you think they, d- they suppress you though, Rose? I know they do it because I go after the Democrats. If I was only going after Trump or Republicans for being bad and being bad actors, then I would be OK. But it's this demented, weird allegiance to the Clintons that I found and Biden to be the cause of it. But Weinstein, you know, he also had high people placed in the tech companies and access to the powerful. So it's, it's just been kind of a continuation. Four days after I outed Weinstein, um, In 2017, Twitter deactivated my account completely and gave a bogus reason why. And then there was a women boycott Twitter worldwide protest for 24 hours till they reinstated me. They reinstated me, but they've been, you know, suppressing me ever since. And that's on all platforms. I said I was going to be doing a a live debate response to the last Trump biden debate and facebook deactivated my account 30 minutes later after complaining on twitter got reactivated i mean it's just it's it's so obvious what they're doing but it's really frustrating so i'm doing my own podcast so you're doing your own
0: podcast which i see to get around that so you can actually have the voice that you want to have um but i guess i mean you know in in that instance it's it's a difficult one though isn't it because of course the conversation that you want to have is the conversation you believe and you know you believe what you want to say about biden and trump um but equally what it's we we do know is wrong is to use social media um in in a kind of hate environment to mm-hmm. inspire and induce behavior that is not good because i think also you see that you know that's that's a real challenge you, you're trolled yourself it's quite a tricky one, don't you think?
1: Well, it's it's like walking on a tightrope with the ground underneath you not being fully there yet. And it's each step you take on that tightrope with the wind, you know, tossing you around and you're trying your hardest to stay above from falling onto the ground that's just a big hole and is being paved as you walk because it hadn't been done before what I did and not in the way I did it. But what I did learn was that, um, you know, I can withstand hate. I, as a as a formerly famous person, um, as an actress, you receive a lot of hate just for existing. I was used to it, and I just thought, okay, well, if so many people are going to hate me and say nasty, troll, disgusting things, I'll give them a reason, and we'll try to better and heal society. But I can take the hate. It doesn't make it fun, and it doesn't make it sane but I can take it. And you have to be willing when you go all out to go all out. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, we've talked about this
0: before, but I, I don't know how you're able to cope with that short of literally reading nothing. Um, and, you know, and you do continue to have amazing followers and actually one of the joys of doing an Insta live with you or, or any of those things is you have such amazing passionate followers for you for your book brave for a lot of things that you've done but you do have to have that other side how do you cope with it and and what's enabled you to be so strong
1: i think i've been strong you know when i got sent to the u.s um it was extremely difficult from you know the second i stepped foot on the ground and i was hated for being different and i was tortured for being different and harassed every day. And it it gave me the ability from a very early age to see and know that it was them and not me, that it was them with the sickness. So most of the stuff I don't internalize. The stuff that does catch you off guard is occasionally somebody spells correctly and uses good punctuation. And that one kind of, those tend to stick a little more (laughs) when they say bad things. I'm like, oh no, good punctuation and sentence structure. Uh Uh-oh. But most of the time you can kind of just let it go. I tend, if I post something that is slightly, that would be considered inflammatory, um, I don't really look at those responses for until a little while later so I can handle it because in the heat of the moment, I don't really want to. But I will say that, you know, my activism, you know, the Weinstein stuff, all of that, the cultural reset, as I call it, you know, that was the flaming spear tip I wrote in on my goal, has always been just to make people 10% smarter and 10% more aware and to be able to think in a more abstract fashion and a less black and white way about a lot of the things that we all deal with, but that nobody talks about. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I, and, you know, I love the concept of 10% better because it's so achievable. And it's so interesting how often I hear, particularly at the moment we're in again in this in the kind of business reset where people are going right we need to be significantly better we want 50% growth because we've had minus growth um and actually you know 10% you can keep developing 10% can't you exactly
1: you, yeah. 10% can become 50% but if you aim for 50% that's a huge onus on a lot of people and stress and if you just say it's almost like you know kind of how an aa i guess so like just for today i can stay sober And tomorrow I can drink all I want to drink. And then the next day you say, just for today, I can stay sober. And tomorrow I can drink all I want to drink. And you keep adding up those days that way. I think the 10% better is kind of like that. Keep adding to that 10%, but achieve that 10% first.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the things um, that there's been a lot of conversation about in the last few weeks is Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Um, The very public conversation. Um, with Oprah Winfrey I'm interested not particularly in whether you think they were right or wrong but I'm interested in the piece around um, this persecution and the feeling of how do you cope and and then the balance between saying look I really find that really difficult to be, to cope with. But then also, you know, Megan and clearly has had a very, very difficult time, but is continuing to have a very public life and to be out there. And I think, you know, for me, and so I'm interested in your views on that.
1: It is tricky continuing to have a public life and trying to survive the public life. You know, it is not easy and anybody... The armchair quarterbacks that are sitting there saying, you know, well she should do this or she should do that. First of all, everybody seems to be focusing on her. They forget that Harry, Prince Harry, was the soldier. This seems to be a, ver- a man who is a man in full, and and they act like her vagina came and dragged him off a of throne. It's absurd, you know. The thing is, hate speech and bullying—it is brutal, and and it's almost like you can feel it when you've gone viral. And, you know, and they're talking about Megan on a scale that's insane and, and, and persecuting her for being a woman and, and obviously a woman of color. I lived in London for the two years when she was, you know, still in the Royal family. And I saw how the media treated her there. She's not wrong, but people, I know also that in the UK, it's an institution. This is something that is a very familiar feeling and people don't like change, but it I think we need to get to a place where we can respect somebody's individual life choices and not and see how it really does not affect anybody's life other than the people it's actually affecting directly. It's not affecting, you know, Joe in the pub's life in any way. No. And no. and so live and let live. They might not be your choice. You might have done differently, but this is her choice and his choice. So respect that. I of course there's been abuse and I don't know why it's so hard for people just to own that and say I'm sorry I'll do better yes
0: yes yeah but I guess you know owning owning it is is very difficult isn't it for for many people and we we have different perspectives um and mm-hmm. for you you have you know, you fought your activism a lot is around getting people to own their mistakes, to own a situation, to own a kind of culture. So, you know, you talk about this cultural reset. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that.
1: Well, I've said for years, and I said this before the Me Too hashtag became popular, I said, it's a cultural reset. This is what I'm working on. And and that's what I did, you know. And the cultural reset was kind of like exploding TNT in the mind because it was just something that everybody swept under the rug. And again, my whole life is not remotely about sexual harassment, sexual assault. That again, was the flaming spear tip I wrote in on. I have a lot more left to do. I have a lot more people left to inspire. And my message overall is one of hope that I know we can be better. I believe in us. And and we are only as sick as our secrets. And, it's, and we are not only you know, what happened to us, we're many different things. And a cultural reset is just that it's like, it's like when you make a huge mess cleaning out your closet in the springtime, but then guess what, it gets clean, you just caused a reset in your closet. It's kind of the same thing with the (laughs) mind and difficult things, you know, and, and for me, it's been interesting. I've always been a part of other people's marketing campaigns. And that's the, the area that I'm not And it could be because I'm suppressed so much on social media, but also marketing myself is something that I'm uncomfortable with and have to figure out how to do and how to get my um, ideas across and, and my voice out there. Because I do feel honestly like if you actually use the word influencer as someone who actually does influence society, not just to buy a bikini on Instagram, but to maybe think differently and be better you know, then I guess I would, you could say I'm a true influencer by that respect. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess- But I guess, they know, but the ones that sell bikinis know how to monetize it and yeah. I don't.
0: Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there's a very fine line between an influencer and an activist. And you are definitely an activist. And I think part of the, the, the challenge, even with the word activist, is that it makes people feel uncomfortable. Influences are kind of soft nice relatively easy thing for people to understand There's, there's nothing there's nothing scary you know if you take your brand and you give it to an influencer you're expecting them to look after it and just kind of promote it in a nice way and and you'll get some response but you are an activist and I think with that you know there's there's some extremes and that is quite scary for a lot of people so I have every time I talk about you I'll have people going literally she's the goddess I want to know her what she like what she think like she's motivated me she's inspired me and other people will say oh yeah she's she's like a bit mad isn't she
1: and that's because it's so out of their own purview the idea of being somebody who disrupts and and is okay with making people uncomfortable globally for a good cause um it's something that they can't relate to. So they go with the old standard, she must be crazy. No, I'm actually, I, by rights, I, I could be, and I should be considering what I've been through. I should be walking down the street with my hair on fire, but I'm absolutely not. <laughs> and, I, and I often feel like I'm the sanest one in the room and I'm, I'm thinking, but everyone's pointing fingers at me, but all these people trying to live by a false system that drives people to early deaths you know, uh, what's more crazy, being honest, and trying to change the world and inspire people, because I consider myself a motivator. I'm like a cheerleader for people to be better. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you do have to nail people in an uncomfortable, harsh way. But most of the time, you know, I uplift my speeches when I give when I was doing them before COVID. You know, they're very uplifting. They're not I don't sit there and yell at people, but that's the media and Harvey Weinstein paid a lot of journalists off to do this for years, painted me as an imbalanced person, but that's what they do, you know, to anybody that stands up and is different, particularly to women, and it's so boring. Yeah. Oh, no. I would just suggest that they should listen or read my book, Brave, and then they can know how sane or not sane I am and judge for themselves.
0: Yeah, completely, completely, Rose. So let's just come on to this latest project. I'm fascinated. You know, we we talk because we're both so passionate about well-being, well-being in the workplace, uh, well-being inside us. Um, Thinking about ourselves and going, you know, your planet nine, I think is a, is a wonderful way of using music to enable and enlighten people to think differently. Um, Tell us a little bit about the, uh, what what are you going to, what are you going to call the place that you're creating?
1: That is the tricky part. I cannot figure it out so far because wellness center just sounds like cliche spa. Um, Yeah. Which isn't what I'm doing. So I have to come up with a name if anybody out there has any comments or suggestions I am. I'm down to hear them You know, i've realized that i'm gonna have to make my own way precisely because of what you said because people are afraid of that Which is different But just because it's different doesn't mean it's not a good bet doesn't mean it's not good business you know, the thing is my brand is truth and that's what people respond to. So whatever I build and whatever I do and however I, I wind up determining to help more people will be done with truth. And And that's my brand. And, and it's ironic, like going back to what you were saying before about how some pe- people are scared of me, even the ones that say, oh, she's amazing what she like," but then are too scared to pull the trigger on something or a partnership or a collaboration. You know, I would say... Um, That's why I'm doing it myself because I don't have time for people's fear. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I could, I mean, I could have blown up every single person in Hollywood, but that's not what I did. I, I go after very specific people. Others are safe, you know, obviously not protecting secrets or anything gross, but if a company is ethical, I am all for it. I'm working with this company called not me hashtag, not me app. And it's an amazing Um, technology that a man has come up with and a Frenchman at that. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it it allows people to report um, not just misdeeds of a sexual nature, but anything and have it, it And its, it's really helps the company because then they can track and log these things in real time and they can stamp it out before it gets bad before you have a huge problem on your hands and it's free there's hashtag not me app and you can look for that on instagram or just in the app store um hashtag not me and it it is it should take the place of human resource departments I'm, i'm not explaining it you know to the best of my ability it is not like oh my god people are just gonna start telling on everybody because it can be anonymous but it's mostly there is um you do have to give your name and email or your email address. There is verifications. There's things like that, but it's really like a tracking, a tracker app that just tracks the people in your company. Are they doing something racist? Did they make somebody uncomfortable? And it's not like kind of a, like kind of like a stop a reporting thing. It's, it's, it's much smarter than that. And, and not evil, and not, um, not there to cause harm, but there to help. And before it turns into something bad that the company then is on the hook for a lot of money for Okay. Okay. Well, that's, an, and it's a free app. Okay. Well, we should, we should have a it's look free. at that and we should maybe talk about
0: that another time. Um Well, yes. I, you know, I think, um you know, truth, truth is so much at the heart of what you talk about. It's at the heart of your book, Brave. Um You should probably just be calling your new, your new wellness center, but we don't want to call it that the truth center or, you know, a way of finding truth, because that feels like so much the essence of what you want to try and do.
1: It really is. And the essence, you know, of healing, helping heal people's trauma and helping people develop who they are without fear. So many of us are afraid, what's going to happen? You know, people can't handle a bad Instagram comment that someone leaves, you know, people are so scared. But if I said to you right now, Suki, you're a terrible person, you're going to burn in hell. Okay. Did you survive that? Yeah. Was it pleasant? No. Did you survive? Yes. You know, we can survive people saying bad things. There are other things that people do that maybe we can't survive, but that we can, we can, yes. you know, if we can develop enough inside of ourselves to realize that it's really them, that yes. it's the people doing the gaslighting, the trickery of the mind and, and the power abusers, then also just realizing like, what do we want to be? And if this is our one shot in this life, don't we want to be brave for ourselves and for others? Yeah. And for me, healing has been a tremendous component of, of what I've sought out my whole life, but haven't been able to get to until this last year. And that's what I want to help spread um, with the center for whatever I'm calling it. <laughs> the, the Center for Truth. And is it in Mexico? It is. It is in Mexico. Brilliant. And it's in the Mexican Caribbean Brilliant. in the jungle. Oh.
0: When you open it, I want to be there. That sounds like- I would love for that. It sounds like the most perfect place. Oh, you know,
1: look, Rose, I always love- I'm, I'm building to I'm building domes. I'm building it in domes, actually. Everything is a circle. Okay. And so there's the component with the music where people will be on their backs um, and there's visuals on the dome ceiling above them. So it's very much kind of like visiting planet nine, this imaginary or real planet where we can all be better and we can all grow and we can all heal. And have fun. We forget that too. Sometimes I have fun.
0: Yeah. Well, we not we want to have fun. We want to be creative. We want to look after our well being, spiritually, mentally. Um, but I think, you know, creating something to enable people to be brave, to understand the fear within them, um, there is no one better than you to do that. So, you know, I hope thank over you, Suki. A- the journey over the next year we'll, we'll hear more about that um when are you thinking about being able to have it sorted and launched and ready
1: well right now the architect is drawing up we're drawing you know the buildings and and because people will be able to stay there it's i hope by this time next year or great. earlier great yeah i'm really great. excited
0: Oh, well, we'll be able to do a power-up from there. Oh Yes. Yeah, great. Uh, Rose, it's so lovely to talk to you. Thank you for sharing. Um, You know, of course, you're such an inspiring woman, but I'm always fascinated by your business brain, and I wanted to try and get in this conversation a little bit deeper into um, some of the experiences you've had, some of the ways you think about business. Because I think for many companies, as we come out of this pandemic – It's so important that we don't just go back to the norm, that we have a moment for cultural reset. We have a moment to call out behaviors, ways of working, some of them which are bad, but some of them that are just not optimal. And we need to do a big shift now. Um, And I think that you're a very important part and a very important voice to be heard uh, within that kind of conversation. So thank you for sharing that with me today. Thank you, Suki, for having me. For listening if you've enjoyed reset the podcast i'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues friends and family reset the podcast is a let's reset and advertising week global production executive producer is richard larson with me suki thompson thanks to our sponsor liars non-alcoholic spirits and voiceover artist talapa penny music provided by audio network